Remain standing for our gospel lesson from John 12. I'm going to read verses 27 to 33, not quite to the end of the passage printed in the bulletin. Listen carefully because this is God's gospel. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I both have glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word because it is truth and we can stand on it and believe it and depend on it and trust in it to make us wise unto salvation. We trust that you will do that this morning by your spirit working in our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Open your Bibles to John 12 if you haven't. We're going to consider verses 27 to 33, John 12, 27 to 33. Here are the first three questions and answers from the children's catechism. Question number one, who made you? Answer, God. What else did God make? All things. God made all things. Question number three, why did God make you? In all things. For his own glory. Good. Some of you have studied that catechism. Your number one purpose in life is to bring glory to God. The God who made you. You must never set that purpose aside. It can never become the second purpose to another primary purpose. There will never be a moment in your life, not in this life or in the life to come, there will never be a moment of your existence when you should not be thinking about what it means for you in that moment to glorify the God who made you, the God who saved you, the God who takes care of you. Jesus applied this same, same principle to his own life. In his darkest hour, when his soul was the most troubled, he didn't forget why he came into this world. He remembered why he left heaven, took on human flesh, and why 
he was headed to the cross. In verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And the implied answer is, no way. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. For this purpose, he says. What purpose? For what purpose did Jesus come to the hour of his death? Well, the beginning of verse 28 answers that question. Father, glorify your name. That's why. It's not wrong to say that Jesus came to earth to die. He did come to earth for the purpose of dying on a cross. That's true. But his death serves an even greater purpose, the greatest purpose, the glory of God. The glory of God. We see in this passage how committed God is to his own glory. Verse 28 doesn't just say that Jesus asked the Father, prayed to the Father that he would glorify his name. That's the part I read. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say that God has already glorified his name and he will continue to do so. He's committed to this. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The reason you should live for God's glory is that God forever lives for God's glory. Being committed to God's glory is just one of the ways that you imitate God. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to think ill of God's self-centeredness, perhaps. It, It may not seem noble to you. It may not sit well with you that God is so committed to glorifying his own name. You you might be asking, so is God a narcissist? And it's okay. But you see, this way of thinking fails probably in a lot of directions, but at least in a couple of ways. First, it fails miserably to consider the true nature of God's glory and majesty. God deserves every bit of glory there is to give Him and more. And if God were to act as if that were not the case, if He were to pretend Somehow that he's not worthy to receive more than all the glory and praise and honor that could ever be ascribed to him. Then he would simply be denying reality. He would be committing the supreme act of false humility. Second, thinking ill of God's commitment to his own glory fails to factor in the central way in which God accomplishes his own glory. What is the primary way that God the Father has brought glory to his name? By sending his Son into the world to take up human flesh so that he could be despised and rejected by his fellow men, and ultimately so that he could take up a cross and endure the Father's wrath for the sake of mankind. That's the chief 
historical instance of God's self-glory. Think about what that means. The cross of Christ, you see, reveals the true nature of our God, of the one true God, the only God. The cross puts God's commitment to his own glory in the proper light. And the cross also shines a light on what it means for you to glorify God in your life, in your body. Last week, we saw in verses 20 to 26 of John 12 that Jesus came to be a different kind of king, a different kind of ruler. He came to rule by a new principle. He came, he he became the king of Israel and the king of the world by means of a sacrificial death on a cross. Genuine life and genuine rule come through death, through sacrifice, through self-denial. Remember what Jesus said up in verses 24 and 25. You can look up there in your Bibles. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The Lord Jesus rules. He he ruled from the cross. He glorified his Father from the cross, and so do those who. Who follow Jesus. The only life that truly lives, the only life that truly glorifies God, is the cross shaped life. It was true for Jesus, and it's true for you as a follower of Jesus. Now, even though the word cross does not appear, Explicitly in our passage today, the cross still is central to John 12, verses 27 and following. The heading in my New King James Version Bible, at least, appropriately appropriately titles this section, Jesus Predicts His Death on the Cross. We see in verses 27 to 33 the effects of the cross on Jesus, the effects of the cross on the world, the effects of the cross on Satan, and the effects of the cross on the sheep, on the elect. That's the the big picture. Now let's, let's look at the details. First, the effects of the cross on Jesus himself. Verse 27 says, strikingly, now my soul is troubled. One translation says, now my soul is in turmoil. Now the answer might seem obvious, but we need to ask the question anyway. Why was Jesus experiencing such anguish? Was it because of the excruciating physical pain that he knew he was about to endure? The stripes on his back, the nails running through the nerves in his hands and feet, 
the agony of trying to pull himself up to get a breath of air on the cross. That was certainly part of what troubled his soul. Jesus is truly human, and as such, he couldn't help but to dread the brutality that he would undergo soon. But other men have been crucified, and some men have died more physically painful and more prolonged deaths than the one that Jesus experienced on that Roman cross. There was something else that tormented Jesus. He said, now my soul is troubled. Because he was about to bear the world's sin. He was about to suffer the wrath and judgment of God. That's what threw his soul into turmoil. The great hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, which is based on Isaiah 53, puts it well. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Justice in that last line is spelt with a capital J because it refers to God. Christ's suffering at the hands of humans was deep and painful. But the deepest stroke that pierced Jesus on the cross was the stroke that his father gave. The anger and wrath of God, which Jesus willingly submitted himself to, caused his soul to be deeply anguished. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Christ's soul, which had never been tainted with sin, would soon be overwhelmed with the penalty for the world's sins. God would pour out his punishment on the soul of his son. Jesus was about to endure the wrath of God. He was about to pay for your sins. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, literally becoming the cursed one for us. Christ was damned to redeem you from damnation. He became the curse the cursed one, so that you could escape God's eternal curse. That's why Jesus' soul was in distress, in turmoil, troubled. A little later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14 says that Jesus, quote, began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, to Peter, James, and John, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. 
Then the next verse, Mark 14, 35, says this. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Luke twenty two forty four adds this detail. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. End quote. His dread was grounded in the thought of being forsaken and judged by his father. He and the father had enjoyed eternal fellowship, eternal intimacy together. They created the cosmos together. Now, the son would have to become a sin bearer so that together he and the Father could save you. How did Christ respond to this anguish of soul? He embraced his cross. Instead of saving his life, he lost it. He gave it up. He denied himself. The cross was his path to life and rule and glory. The cross was his pursuit. Your curse was his God-given burden. He had to go to Calvary. That's why in the following phrase... He prayed, Father, glorify your name. Now we need to pause for a moment here and compare our Lord's statement in verse 28 that I just read with another statement that he made in last week's passage up in verse 23. In verse 28, Jesus sees his death as glorifying the Father. His purpose is to glorify the Father. And in order to glorify the Father, he must die. But what does he say up in verse 23? Look up there with me. He says, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. It's the same hour, the same event. So who's being glorified in Jesus' death? Is it the Father or the Son? Well, according to verses 23 and 28, it's both. You see, Jesus believed that glorifying the Father was the only path to his own glory. He believed that glorifying the Father was the only path to his own glory. Jesus believed this about himself. Do you believe it about yourself? Do you believe in the depths of your soul that giving glory to God, laying down your life, becoming a living sacrifice, losing your life, is the only path to your own glory? Do you live that way? Do you make decisions based on that truth? God plans to glorify you. Did you know that? 
He's in this for your glory, in part. He glorified Jesus, and he will glorify you. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And listen to this. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Back in John 5, many months ago, we covered that. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for receiving and seeking glory from one another. Instead of seeking glory that comes from God. The glory that God gives. Seeking glory that comes from God is a good and noble thing for you to do. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2, 6-10. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality... He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, you see that? Seeking for glory and honor and immortality is not self-seeking. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. That's your glory there and mine. One more text on this. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve in you for good and every work of faith by his power. So that, two things, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. That's primary. And, number two, so that you may be glorified in Him. There's no conflict between pursuing God's glory and pursuing being glorified by God in Christ. There's no conflict, let me say that again, between pursuing God's glory and pursuing being glorified by God in Christ. The only question, the only possible issue, and it could be a big one, is whether your idea of your glory matches God's idea. Whether your idea of how you get to that glory matches God's idea of how you get to that glory. Do you believe, and I'll ask it again, in the depths of your soul, that giving glory to God is the pathway to your own glory? Jesus knew, he truly believed that taking up his cross was both the only path to glorifying God and the only path to being glorified by God. Do you know this? Do you believe this? 
or are you grasping for glory some other way, through some other means? Do you want what's yours now? Or are you willing to wait for God? Are you willing to wait and die to yourself on the way to getting it? Adam, in the garden, prematurely grasped for glory. Glory that would have been his if he had waited on God to give it to him. The glory of ruling, reigning, knowing good and evil as a king. But you see, he didn't believe in that moment when he ate, he didn't believe that genuine life and genuine rule come through death to self, death to desires, death to immediate gratification. But where the first Adam failed, where the first Adam disobeyed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded. He obeyed. He pursued God's glory, truly, And in so doing, he pursued the glory that comes from God. In John 17, 1, Jesus will pray, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. See those two things paired up again? Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Glorifying God is... And being glorified by God are an inseparable pair. It was true for Jesus and it's true for you. Excuse me. When Jesus said, Father, glorify your name, the Father's booming voice thundered from heaven. He said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus may have been the only one who heard the actual words, who could discern what the Father said there, but he wasn't the only one who heard the Father's voice. Look at verses 29 and 30. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, not come for me, for my sake, but for your sake. If you Google loudest sound ever heard, don't do it now, what comes up is the volcanic eruption on the island of Krakatoa in Indonesia, and it occurred on August 27th, 1883, the loudest recorded sound. And some recorded hearing it up to 3,000 miles away. It ruptured the eardrums of people 40 miles away. But that eruption was only a dim reflection of the power of God's voice, the potential 
of God's sound, God's voice. All the sounds in the universe were created by the sound of God, by His words, by His voice. God created all matter and all the sounds that matter is capable of producing. (coughs) God's voice is powerful to create and powerful to destroy. It's powerful to save and powerful to pronounce judgment and condemnation. It always does what it sets out to do. It always accomplishes its purposes. And in this passage, the word of God, the voice of God, marks a turning point in the history of redemption. Here's how one commentator put it. Even though the crowd did not understand the voice, the very fact that a voice from heaven spoke should have been sufficient to alert those with any spiritual sensitivity that a turning point in redemptive history was impending. For those with ears to hear, Jesus' next words take on fresh urgency. So look with me at Jesus' next words in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Verses 27 to 30 revealed the effects of the cross on Christ. Here, verse 31 reveals the effects of the cross on the world and on Satan, the ruler of this world. And what does Jesus mean when he says, now the judgment of this world is here? Now is the judgment of this world. Other passages in John's gospel teach that judgment is reserved for the end of the age. The final judgment when Jesus returns. But here Jesus says that the final judgment of Christ has in some sense broken into history. It begins here at the cross of Christ in some way. Yeah, we're still waiting for the culmination of that judgment. But in some way, it it began at the cross. The cross is the crisis moment in history. The Greek word for judgment is krisis. Krisis. Where we get our word crisis. The cross was a critical moment, a turning point, a crisis in world history. A krisis. The light of the cross forces a division between those who come to the light on the one hand and those who do not on the other hand. Jesus expanded on this point about judgment, the the now aspect of judgment. Back in John 3, listen as I read verses 17 to 19 in John chapter 3. And this is the judgment, the chrysis. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. 
but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's the effect of the cross on the world, on humanity. It divides the light from the darkness. It exposes and it judges. Do you love the darkness? Or do you love doing what is true, as Jesus puts it? A couple of chapters later in John 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. The most important thing to know about yourself is that you will not be judged when Jesus returns because you've crossed over from death to life. Have you crossed over from death to life, from darkness to light? Are you doing what is true? If you're not sure or if you don't even know what that means, if you don't know what it means to be transferred, as Paul puts it, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, then you need to talk to me or someone sitting next to you about this. There's no event in your life more important than crossing over from death to life, from judgment to eternal life through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to know exactly when that happened. That's, the Bible nowhere says that, that you have to have a, have a date and a time for when that happened. But Jesus says here, those who, to whom it's happened have left the darkness and they're entering into the light and they're doing what is true and they no longer love the darkness. Not perfectly, not sinlessly, but that's the trajectory. That's the direction. Is that you? Does that describe you? What about the effect of the cross on Satan? Second part of verse 31 says, back in John 12, verse 31, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. You see, the cross, the cross event delivered the decisive blow that will ultimately destroy Satan. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This destruction of the devil and his works happened principally on the cross. Now the devil didn't experience the final, his final defeat at the cross, did he? He's still active. The final defeat of the devil is still to come. But he did experience his decisive defeat. The devil's decisive defeat at the cross guarantees his final defeat in the future when Jesus will cast him into the lake of fire forever, never to be released. How is it that Jesus defeated the devil on the cross? What happened? How did it work? Jesus defeated him. He defeated your ancient foe and mine by disarming him 
by disarming him of the weapon that he could have used against you. The main weapon that he could have used against you to condemn you to hell forever. And do you know what that weapon is or was? That Jesus stripped away from the devil. What did Jesus strip Satan of? What weapon? How did he, what he did, what did he disarm him of? It was your unforgiven sin. At the cross, your unforgiven sin was stripped from the accuser, the devil, rendering him powerless, defeated, definitively destroyed. Revelation 12 verse 11 says of believers, they have conquered him, the devil, Satan, the serpent. How? By the blood of the lamb, it says. The little g God of this world has been cast out of the heavenly courtroom. And Christ, and through his blood, the blood of the lamb, your case is settled. Your judgment is passed. Your sins are washed away. They've been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Your accuser has no records on you. His, his briefcase has been emptied of all of the incriminating evidence that he had accumulated against you. He's got no say now in how God deals with you eternally. You've passed from death to life, from his domain into the kingdom, the domain of God's beloved son. From judgment to eternal life. So we've discussed the effects of the cross on Jesus himself, on the world, and on Satan. Verses 32 and 33 reveal the effects of the cross on the sheep, on the elect. Verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth. I could go either way there, and I think it's when. Will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The historical event that draws people to Jesus is his being lifted up from the earth on the cross as an atonement for sin. It's not his miracles or his magnetism or his moralism that draws men, chiefly. It's his sacrificial death on the cross that draws people to himself. Now we need to spend just a couple of minutes here looking at the sentence, I will draw all peoples to myself. What does that mean? Who does all peoples refer to? Many believe Jesus is saying that he will draw all kinds of people to himself. People from every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Red, yellow, black, white, and brown people will be drawn to Jesus through the cross. 
That's a possible interpretation. That's obviously not heretical. doesn't present any problems. Jesus, we know, I mean, some, I could have backed up even further. Jesus, some people say that Jesus is literally meaning every single person who ever lives. But Jesus certainly isn't saying that every person without exception will be drawn. Jesus is not a universalist. But I'm not sure that all peoples means all kinds of peoples. It's possible, but I don't think that's the best interpretation. I think it means all the sheep, all the elect, all that the Father has given to the Son. Now, in the Greek, if, if you use a New King James Version, I'll, I'll let you, tell you something about your Bible here. In the Greek of verse 32... There's no, there's no word for peoples. That's an interpretation. If, so if you're reading in the New King James Version, you'll notice that the word peoples is italicized. That's because it's not in the Greek. It's been supplied by the translators. And that's okay, we have to do that. When you go from one language to another, it's not a one-for-one. One. And so there's some interpretation going on. But the Greek simply says all, and I will draw all to myself. I think the NASB is another Bible that does that for you. It lets you know when they're adding words that they think are implied. So we're left to interpret who the all refers to. So the translators of the NKJV and others thought Jesus was talking about all peoples, all people groups, all kinds of people. But Jesus seems more likely to be referring to all the sheep, all the elect, all that the Father has given to the Son, all that are currently in the sheep pen, and all that will be, as he puts it in one place. The word all here echoes John 6.37, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Similarly, John 17, 2 says that, says that the Son gives eternal life to all. Same word, all the Father has given to Him. Jesus' death on the cross purchased the salvation for all the sheep. It did what it set out to do. It accomplished what it set out to accomplish without fail. Jesus draws, draws all who are in the sheepfold and all the sheep who will ever be in the sheepfold. He is drawing or will draw all of them. All that the Father has given to him. I want to close with a story that... Uh, Another preacher told preacher, uh, a story that, that he told to, to his children about a boy who wanted a model sailboat. The boy saved his money so that he could purchase this model sailboat. And he finally saved up enough money. And he took his money to the toy shop and he picked out one of the kits and he brought it home and he spent days building this sailboat and perfecting it, getting it just right, meticulously. Finally, when he had finished, he took it down to the lake and he put it in the water 
and it sailed beautifully right across the lake and out of sight. The sailboat was gone. Several weeks later, the boy was walking past a store on the sidewalk. And in the store window, there it was, the sailboat. And it was for sale with a, with a big fat price tag on it. And so to get his boat back, the boy would have to purchase it at a high price. So once again, the boy worked until he had sufficient funds, and then he went to town with his money, and he bought his boat back. And as he walked out of the store, holding the boat in his hands, he said to his boat, Now you are twice mine. Once because I made you, and once because I bought you. Because you belong to Jesus, because Jesus has drawn you to himself through the power of the cross, his cross, he says the same thing to you. You are twice mine. Jesus created you. He made you. He formed you. And then... He bought you back. He purchased you by his death on the cross. You are twice his. You belong to him. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Why then should you glorify God? Because he made you and he saved you. And he takes care of you. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for not only making us, but also for saving us, for rescuing us, for not leaving us in our sins, but for taking our place of judgment, curse, And God, help us by the power of your Spirit to walk in the newness of life that you have given us, to walk in the resurrection life through the power of the gospel that saves us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.